gospel because that's what it is all about this morning. Um, we are in Second Timothy chapter three. We're kind of ending there in fourteen through seventeen. Um, not only is the word of God completely sufficient, not only do we call our vacation Bible experience, the Bible tells me so, so wanting to reiterate this truth and pass it on to the generations ahead. But without a shadow of a doubt, the word of our almighty God is the only consistent rock in our lives. And it will be in our best interest as the people of God to know the word of God very well. You see, church, the, the truth of the matter is the Bible is no ordinary book. 18th century, uh, the French philosopher Voltaire announced to a large crowd of people cheering his name that uh, this was his prediction. Inside of 100 years, this thing called the Word of God, this thing called the Bible that was captivating Europe that had been for some time, would fall off, he said, into the abyss of irrelevance. It would fall out of place and it would fall out of grace. And then the crowd cheered. Soon after that speech, Voltaire died. And here you and I are still reading the Bible today. And last year, China had more missionaries leave for the United States than the United States had leave for China. When Voltaire died, they auctioned off Voltaire's house. He was innovational and he was considered a national treasure there, so it went for a great deal of money and it was an incredibly publicized event. After a long, tedious auction, the auctioneer banged the gavel on the desk to announce who would be living in Voltaire's house. The house was sold to the French Bible Society. They promptly moved in and began to use the house as a printing press, printing thousands and thousands of Bible going up against those who say God has no sense of humor. Voltaire's gone, and soon we will be too. His house, though, turned into a Bible factory. But one thing we can always depend on, church, and hear me with open ears, is that the word of God is still here. It will always be here. It is still relevant. It will always be relevant. It is still powerful. It will always, in every word, there is point, there is purpose, and there is direction that guides us back to our loving, merciful Jesus. I would like to begin this morning with the question, what does it mean when the Bible says we are a people who do not live on bread alone, but every word of our Lord? Now, you can stay turned there to 2 Timothy three fourteen through 17, because that is our main text. But while you're there, I just want to take you on a brief tour to how we got to 2 Timothy chapter 3. First people from the very beginning of the Old Testament was to depend on what he had to say. The manna, as you remember, bread from heaven falling out of the skies in Exodus 16 sustained the Israelites, sustained the Hebrew people, God's people, in the wilderness. Now, why did God lead his people into the wilderness and then ordain for them to be fed by bread from heaven? Honest question. Chapter 16, verse 4. Then the Lord said then for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. Why? That I may test them. Whether they will walk in my law or not, God was teaching them to walk in his law, to walk in him. Moving along to Deuteronomy 8, God does this every day for 40 years. He feeds them and he sustains them in the wilderness. And as they are about to enter the promised land, there will be an abundance of food there. And when asked 
by grumbling people. Why did God do what he did? We see in verse 3 there in Deuteronomy chapter 8, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. God teaches his people, historically and now, their dependence on him is deeper than even... Many years later in Matthew 4, before Jesus begins his ministry, he is being tempted by the devil. Do you remember that? He has not eaten for 40 days. Some of us are hangry after a few hours. I've noticed you when I pray too long before the potluck. Verse 1, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Verse 2, 40 days and 40 nights, the Bible says he was hungry, which is probably the greatest understatement in the entire word. Verse 3, and the tempter came and said to him, this is Satan, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become, become loaves of bread. But Christ answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Christ then after that lives a perfect life, teaches his disciple the truth of the gospel, Continues to live a perfect life, I should say. He is crucified, he was resurrected, and has ascended to the right hand of the Father with a mission for the New Testament church, us in this room. Go and make disciples, baptize them, build the kingdom of God while we await his return. The last days are considered the day from his ascension to the day he is returning, and that's all we really need to know. In 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17, we are brought past this brief tour of the Testaments to see that we have been created with this need to eat, this craving. Holiday time, this food craving seems to double. But the scripture says there is a deeper craving than sustenance. A need for the perfect word of God. Second Timothy chapters 3 and 4 are separated in terms of kind of a warning. And they consist in three tiers of an implicit call for Timothy to endure for the gospel in a crucial and difficult setting for the early church. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, just a bit of recap for you, for those of us who haven't been able to see the videos in the past couple weeks. Profile of false teachers. Neil went over this very well and what the word around the church is made up of. In chapter 3, we went over this last week, that we are a um, Christ-like people living in a cultural world. So the church is to be counterculture, that we are to stick closely to godly examples, and that the world around us is the setting, not the influence of us, but the setting for the mission that we will survive if we stick close to Jesus Christ. And the next tier in the passages, what we're going to be going over today, is the calling to endure. My hope is we will leave understanding what it looks like to live on every word out of the mouth of God. Not some scripture, not our favorite verses, all scripture, every word out of the mouth of God, and how his word supernaturally sustains us until we meet him face to face. If you are able, will you please stand with me at this time to read 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 
All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. May God bless the reading of his word. Church, you may be seated. First question, verses 14 through 15. What does it mean to live off of every word from God? Here's your answer. Make God's word supreme in your life. How do we live off of every word from God? We make God's word supreme in our lives. More than food and sleep is our need and desire for God's word. Paul refers to two ways, actually, in which we live off of every word from God. The first we're going to go over shortly uh, today is in our homes. The second is actually in our churches. When Neil brings us the beginning of chapter 4 next week, that's a word, preach the word. That's a word for those in churches and those preaching to churches. So before we do that, the most important place in which we are to teach the word of God is in our homes. Second Timothy 1, do you remember that? Paul says, I'm reminded, Timothy, he's talking to his, uh, his trainee, his, his disciple in the faith, Timothy, as Timothy goes to pastor the church at Ephesus, I'm reminded, Timothy, of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother and mother. See, the word of God has been passed down to Timothy in his home. In Deuteronomy, we see, again, the necessity to put the word everywhere in your home, doorposts and thresholds. They even say, bind it in front of your eyes. This is the vitality. This is the necessity of depending on the word of God as often as we possibly can. And somewhere along the way, I think we've lost a little bit of the importance here. This is important words right here that Paul starts us off with in 14 through 15, especially those to every parent and grandparent in this room. Do not starve your children of the word of God. It would be horrific, right, to intentionally starve our children of food, right? It's against the law. But more than physical food, the Bible says a greater need than eating is spiritual food. Getting after this text, getting lost in the scriptures. If we aren't careful out of just mispriority or a too busy of schedules, we could starve them from what they need the most. You can feed them. This is the scariest truth you can tell a parent. You can feed them physical food for decades. You can offer them positive words of encouragement. They can know they are loved by you. They can know they are cared for. And they can excel at any task placed before them. And they may still die not knowing Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. In our culture, we are tempted to teach our children at every turn to be good at a sport, this activity, this talent, this skill. We pour hours of our time and energy and money and effort into them doing all of these things in the world well. Things that will build up their character, building up stats and accomplishments. All of these things, the Bible tells us, will eventually burn up. And if we're not careful, we ignore the one thing that will never burn up. The one thing that matters the most. How well they can wield the power of God's word. It's more important than character building exercises and extracurriculars. Look, enjoy your extracurriculars. But the word lasts when everything else doesn't. 
Enjoy this life righteously, but the discipleship of the word of God must be priority one by the primary spiritual disciplers in your children's lives, which is you. This is not a responsibility that's handed over to the pastor by which a parent can, or a grandparent even can ignore and hope it all works out. Too much is at stake for us to be inactive in training and raising our kids in the word of God. Souls are at stake. It's an easy thing for us to vocally profess, but when we start making it a part of our daily routine, we fall. This is a difficult task, but your child's walk with Christ. I'll be honest. Look, the page family worship time is not always a win. Okay, quite often, rather nightmarish would want to be anywhere else sometimes. But guess what? That's not a valid excuse to give it up or slow it down. There's too much at stake. This is ideally how it's supposed to go, right? Like we make plans with God and he laughs. Well, kids laugh, too, at plans. Just a little differently. So ideally, we start with a song, right? Like I'll pick up the guitar or the ukulele or something and we'll play a song together. And there's a scripture. Then we walk through catechisms with Ellie Jo. She's at 20 catechisms right now. We'd still work and meander through it. And then we end in prayer. Our conversation the other night, just to let you know how unideal several things are in the page of worship time, went like this. Because that all sounded great on paper, right? Like, we can keep going if that's the result. But here's what actually happened. So I asked Ellie Joe, I said, what did God make Adam and Eve out of, Ellie? And she said, leaves. And I went, no. I was like, no, they covered themselves with leaves uh, after they had sinned. They were ashamed of their sin. But Adam was made from the dirt and Eve was made from Adam, actually. Ellie looks at me and says, boys were made from the dirt. I said, I said, yeah, honey, they, they were made from the ground. Yeah. She goes, dirt and mud. And I went, yep, she, they, they were made from the ground. She goes, that's what I thought. And you know what? I didn't correct her, her attitude because I'm okay with her thinking boys are from dirt and mud right now. Let that ride. See where it goes. She's 16. She's like, boys are made out of dirt and mud. I'm like, yeah, they are. Yeah, they are. The point is, stick it out. Stick it out. Because they're not always ideal family worship times. That's not an excuse to stop the family worship time. This is what Timothy benefited from. He was a pastor in Ephesus during a great time of persecution during the New Testament church. Why? Because his mother and his grandmother were loyal in teaching him the scriptures. He has Lois and Eunice to thank for his spiritual discipline. This is our responsibility and we have to be serious about it. Make the word of God supreme in your life. And listen, not just some of the word of God. The scriptures go on to tell us, all of the word of God. Moving on to verse 16, it says all scripture, all of God's word leads us to Jesus. And as you'll notice, it look down at your scripture there. Paul uses the phrase, the sacred writings in verse 15, right? He says in 16, there are the scriptures. He speaks of these writings as capable of leading Timothy to the truth of Jesus Christ. Which is the only saving truth. Well, I have a question for you, church. What were considered the sacred writings? The Old Testament. You're seeing the New Testament get played out. 
So it couldn't have been the New Testament. At this point in time, I think you had Mark written. There was a situation where the scriptures, everything they knew to be the story of Jesus Christ, the coming Messiah, was the Old Testament. And we make a terrible mistake as a community of believers when we allow ourselves to be completely confined to preaching the gospel in just the New Testament. When the fact of the matter is the gospel is in the Old Testament. It is the Old Testament scriptures being utilized throughout the book of Acts. As you see, thousands of people are broken by the truth of Jesus. Peter was preaching the Old Testament to them before they were baptized. Church, you can't have prophecies fulfilled without prophecies given. To rid yourselves of half the Bible is to rid yourselves of half the message. Studying all of Scripture is the command. Unfortunately, I even have to spend time on this or mention this because we have come to a time in our day where we as believers need to be reminded that all Scripture is valuable. D.A. Carson says it this way, and I can't put it any other better way. And Neil says if you can't make it sound better, just use a quote. The entire Bible pivots on one weekend in Jerusalem about 2,000 years ago. We trust and study the entire Bible because God uses it to lead us to him. All of it. Yes, I do understand that all scripture is breathed by God and has meaning and direction. And I understand, too, that individually certain passages may be more vital for one's spiritual walk. I'm not unrealistic. I get that. But can I give you an example? Romans 5, 1 through 5, an incredibly important passage in my life, says this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, church, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That passage will preach and go and wake up those who have the spirit of God living inside of us. Vital passage to understand how we obtain saving faith in Jesus Christ, right? How we access faith. We learn that grace is a place there. We learn there's a point to our sufferings. Incredibly vital, incredibly relevant. But then we compare that to something like First Chronicles chapter 27. Where we see lists of like military divisions and leaders of tribes. It can be hard to read that through without the right frame of mind. But let me explain something. Who here has heard of the subject of systematic theology? Systematic theology is the arrangement of all canonized scripture so that everything in the Old Testament and everything in the New Testament remains consistent without contradiction or error. You understand them as a whole without any contradictions. So when you make a commitment to read and study all of scripture, follow me here. You read 1 Chronicles 27, and guess what, church? You stick it out till chapter 28, where we see a strong emphasis placed on the obedience of the king 
and how because of their failures to fully assume these roles, kings, human, earthly men kings, experience severe consequences like David, like Solomon. This led to first kings where we see King Solomon overtaken by his sin, overtaken by his lust, eventually leading to the tearing apart of the entire kingdom in 922 B.C., one thousand years later, we meet the king of kings whose obedience would overcome the failure of previous generations. How do we know this? Romans 5.21 So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you see? Do you see how Romans 5.21 doesn't make sense Without First Chronicles 27 and 28, yet we are quicker to read one and not read the other. The Bible was designed to be one text, one story. It's two testaments with a period of silence separating them. But do not be confused. In God's design, all scripture is profitable. You will not make sense of the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament. Our Bible is two testaments written by one God about one Savior with one message. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. May we rejoice in the fact that we have all Scripture in our language at our convenience. You see, the Word must be supreme in our homes, and we must study it in its entirety. Because in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15-17, through 17, we see the Word of God is what saves, sustains, and strengthens the people of God who here need strength this morning. God's Word, first and foremost, saves us. God's Word saves us. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ. We hear the truth of Christ. We admit we are a sinner, right? We repent. We confess. We believe. And by the Spirit of God revealing this truth in our life, we start to change. We start to walk a life of biblical discipleship, prayer, and Christian fellowship. But how does it get to us? Where does this faith come from? Does it magically appear? Romans 10 says this, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Verse 17, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Salvation comes by hearing the word of God, which is why it is vital that the word of God be clearly preached. It is the word of God that shows us the path to salvation. And can I be very honest with you? Because, you know, that's so unlike my personality, which is why in this last 50 years, we've seen churches adapt to some dangerous tactics in order to sway others into a belief in Jesus Christ. These methods, I believe, mostly done with good intentions. I believe that. When we try to make the word of God more palatable to unbelievers by adding things like pray this prayer or walk this aisle, when repent and believe will do just fine. They are not difficult words to understand. They are nice, easy words to understand. And there is some difficulty that we need strength for to walk them out. But why do so many churches avoid them, even with good intentions? Because there has been a time where they have put more faith in their own words than the word of God. They have read the word of God and they said this could use some help. Church, the word of God does not need our help. 
Alone it can conquer anything. Let it be. Release the lion. It has all the power. We do nothing but menace it when we try to get involved and make our edits. This is so incredibly vital to understand for any other conversation of mentorship or discipleship or fellowship that we could bring inside the walls of the church. Because you can make changes to an ordinary book. You can't make changes to one written by God. In the timeless words of R.C. Sproul, timeless, delicate phrasing. He always had a wonderful way with words. He said, stop messing with it, people. The Bible is no ordinary book. Verse 16, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Paul says that all scripture is inspired by God. Did you catch that? Inspired. The word inspired is only mentioned in this place, this way. The Greek compound word, theos, neustos. God and breath. This word means God breathed. The Bible is the sovereign exhalings of a holy God who is there to save us and sustain us with his promises. It does not belong dusty on your shelves. I love books, man. I always have. Like comic books and the Calvin and Hobbes, but sure. But the illustrated classics. I remember the first time my parents got me those condensed sets of great illustrated classics, you know, that had all the Charles Dickens writings and uh, Last of the Mohicans, man. I love that stuff. And over time, it's moved into mainly a love of theology and kind of every once in a while, a comedian's biography. I don't know how it slips in there, but like I'll be reading a lot of Paul Washer or Jared Wilson. And then I'm like, what's Tim Conway up to? Let's pull out what's so funny. I only know why I do that. Even if you look back on all the books you've read, some of you in here have would just kill me in the book reading contest. Some of you guys have read thousands of books. I can guarantee you, though, that there wasn't a single time in your reading of whatever book is your favorite that that book started reading you. See, the Bible is no ordinary book. It's extraordinary. It's supernatural. It's living. It's breathing. It makes changes to you when you read it. The Word of God is the only Bible on earth where the author is always with us. For those of us in here who like to study theology and other Christian books, because I know many of you have your favorite Christian authors, right? Can I just give you a word of warning? Please be careful that we aren't reading books about the Bible's contents more than we are the Bible itself. John Piper and David Jeremiah, those are fine men of God. But both of those men would point you to Moses, John, and the Paul the Apostle before they would point to themselves. The Bible has no replacement. Are you hearing me, church? The Bible has no replacement. There isn't even anything close. My favorites, man. I love Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. I love A.W. Tozer's The Pursuit of God. If you haven't read that, you need to read that. And I love J.I. Packer's Knowing God. John Piper's Desiring God. R.C. Sproul's The Attributes of God. But God didn't breathe on any of those books. What makes those books so amazing is that the subject matter in their themes are none other than the only book with God's breath upon it. 
Do you cherish your Bible? Do you value your Bible? Do you not only know what it costs men and women like ourselves to have it in our language? The period of time by which people had to sacrifice their lives, be burnt at the stake in front of their families for us to obtain it. That's a whole nother special type of gratitude. But God authored it and wants the people who claim to love him to know it well. So no, there aren't a lot of other really great ways to spend your time compared to learning and knowing and practicing the word of God. It should take an amazing precedent. Think of what would happen to the church in our country if every professed believer in Christ just started getting very serious about studying and learning and memorizing the word of God. We pray for revival. We want a revival. It's not something we emote. It's something we encounter from the scriptures that gives us the strength we need to sustain arrows in this world. When God speaks, church, we must listen. I often find myself amidst a chaotic home of running and crawling children. It's like we birth velociraptors. You're watching two and you're just waiting for another one to come around the sides and to take you out. You know, like you're like, I got my eye on one. And then demolished, right? Like that's just kind of, there's just this chaos environment. And I sit there and sometimes I'll say, I'll say something and nothing happens. I'll voice, I'll parent, and I'm sitting there, I'm going, I'm waiting for something to happen. Nothing does. And I'm sitting there thinking, how should I spend my talent of invisibility? Fighting crime? Is this my chance? Do I just take off? What's, what's the mentality here? But alas, you know what that is another reminder of? That I am a man with ceilings and limitations. God has none. And his word brings unimaginable, limitless power. So much so that he spoke the universe into existence and it is still expanding. When God speaks, people listen. And this happens in all of the Bible. If you look at the Old Testament in Exodus 3, God opens up his mouth to an 80-year-old who had spent the last 40 years on the dusty plains of Midian looking at sheep, but seeing a bush that was burning but not consumed. And when God got finished, this man, Moses, the great prophet, led his people into the promised land. When God speaks, lives are changed. In the book of Jonah, God opens up his mouth and a giant fish redirects Jonah's steps. God speaks to Saul of Tarsus, knocking him off his horse, blinding him. Saul of Tarsus then hears the gospel from another obedient messenger in the book of Acts and becomes Paul the Apostle, author of 33% of the New Testament. Yes, there is power when God speaks. Church, are you listening? This book is not just some textbook. It's the very breath of God. It's without error. And we would be wise to learn to wield it. Charles Spurgeon uses this illustration of a time where he was preaching in England in the 19th century. He was 23 years old and he was asked to preach at the Crystal Auditorium where that night it was to be packed with dignitaries. Can't imagine doing that at 23 years old. Can't imagine doing that now. So the night before Charles goes to the pulpit, Before microphones to test the acoustics, he chooses a single verse and he repeats it over and over again. John 1, 29. Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. He bellows again, repeats. John 1, 29. Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of this world. Spurgeon had no idea that there was a custodian 
in the third, fourth floor of the Crystal Auditorium in the very back, cleaning seats, on his knees weeping at the message of the gospel through that one verse that had been clear and concisely screamed by Spurgeon. While Spurgeon was preparing for another night, God worked through his word in that very place, and that custodian came to faith in Christ Jesus over a sound check. Church, this book has power. And each one of us as a loyal Christ follower have been called to learn how to wield it in a way the kingdom grows and lives are transformed. But God's word not only saves, but the rest of the passage explains to the church how God's word is continually sanctifying in us. We will close with this, this making us holy. It makes us look more like Christ. Look at all the benefits in this package beginning in the second half of verse 16. God's word, first and foremost, educates us. It teaches us. It is profitable for teaching. We must learn how to study the word of God rightly, not twist it in ways that fit our agendas. We don't manipulate the texts in order to get out of the text what we want, but we conform our lives to the text. We let the word change us. We don't change the word. It is profitable for teaching, but only if we submit to its authority. God's word not only educates us, but it convicts us. When we begin to veer off from that which is glorifying to God and good for us, we start to feel conviction from the Holy Spirit. Church, can I encourage you not to feel dismayed at the feeling of conviction, but to feel gratitude when you feel the Holy Spirit convicting you in an area you need convicting? That is a gift of grace. Conviction is God's grace. If he hated us, he'd let us go and continue in our sin. But he loves us, so the word of God convicts us. We have a Father in heaven who pulls us back and keeps us from going the wrong direction. Several of us in here are thankful for parents or grandparents or mentors who did something to keep us from getting off the path. Amen? When we don't fixate on His Word, practice it, depend on it daily, we will veer off. doesn't just convict, though, but it corrects. The Word of God corrects. Now, who here has always been a fan of parental discipline? Yeah, that's what I thought. Where is the straight-A student that just goes, I've always appreciated it, right? There was this one time where um, <coughs> where Ellie Jo, uh, she she just acted out, man, and, and kind of pushed Tegan, who's not a year old yet. And Tegan, just like in the back and everything, and Tegan just kind of face-planted on the ground, you know, and... And I did the swift, no, no, like this was a pop situation, right? So I just went behind her, popped the butt, all right? Are we, are we on the same page here? You get, am I getting your attention? You know? And uh, she turns around, she goes, that didn't hurt. <laughs> now, I don't know. I don't know how a woman takes that response. I don't know how a mother, I know my wife can go straight with Nassau after hearing that, right? Earrings are coming off. What did you say to your mother? Right. But I know that there's this like rage when I hear that phrase like that just builds up. You got to almost kind of walk away and parent later because you'll treat your kid like that strength tester thing at the fair. Like with the hammer and the bell, you're like, oh, yeah, you know, then really get after it. Like you don't want to do that because that's like a bad, that's like a borderline abuse situation. So, you know what I mean? So she says that phrase and it's like, ugh. But when it's difficult, when we're perplexed, if we're bewildered, that's not a time to stop 
That's not a time to revoke or move away from parental discipline. That's a time to lean in. If you are bewildered at the feeling of separation between you and God, can I just ask you a question? Have you been spending time with him in his word? It's easy to feel separated from someone that you're not listening to. This word not only convicts us, but it also corrects us. Praise God, we have a heavenly father who's not just keeping us off the pathways, but guiding us to make sure we hit the right one. Where would we be without that guidance? I don't even want to know. So the the word of God, as you see here in the passage, educates, saves, convicts, corrects, but it also instructs us. It trains us in righteousness. Church, whether it be divorce, recovery, grief, economic crisis, raising teenagers, the temptation in light of these practical things we face is to say, why do I need to learn about the Israelites and the Moabites? I'm going through a terrible divorce. I need something more substantial. Can I just tell you something about the Old Testament, about the New Testament, how all scripture is needed? Reading about the Israelites and the Moabites lets us know more about who our God is. And that's never a bad thing. By the spirit of God in our lives, this information that we get from the word, that we chase after, that we soak in. It will be used to conform our hearts and minds and desires to look more like Christ Jesus. We'll be more in touch with the Holy Spirit who will walk with us through every bit of that divorce, grief, economic crisis, and raising teenagers. He will lead us and guide us. Have you ever just sat and thought about how sweet and gentle our Lord is with us? How patient He's been with us? We must remember the best thing for us is for us to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And that's why this book is so valuable. It is life-saving and it is life-sustaining. God's word is sufficient for us and it is satisfying. Live not by bread alone, but by every word of God. You see, my prayer for our faith family is we would be able to be a people that trust each other. Absolutely. But more than that, we trust his word and his promises. If we can't trust anything else, let's be able to trust fully the promises of God. The word is to desire it more than gold. Psalm 19 says it's satisfying to us. We're not begrudgingly dragging our feet to study it. We desire it. We want it. If the spirit of God's living within us, this is something we pursue. More precious than fine gold. Who here has ever done a yearly Bible reading plan? Okay. Starts in January, you know, you kind of falters off like me and my gym memberships, right? But more than fine gold, people think, I just can't memorize scripture. I just can't do it. Listen, if I were to tell you I'd give you a thousand dollars for every verse you could memorize from here till December, I have a feeling this church would be all about memorization. And I wouldn't accept Jesus wept. It'd have to be longer than two words. You're not getting a thousand bucks for that. All I know is that Emma Sawyer and our Bible Bee participants, they'd be putting down payments on beach houses by Christmas time. I guess the real question is this. Is the word of God more important to us than even our downtime and our money? Do we believe it's more valuable than pieces of currency in a backwards culture? Do we believe it to be more important than our time to ourselves? The people of God will see the word as a reward, not something they have to drag their feet to experience. I'll tell you, Ellie Jo will eat just about anything on her plate if she knows a cookie is coming at the end of it. (laughs) To see the word as a duty instead of a delight is to miss the point. We aren't supposed to drag our feet. We are supposed to hunger for it. 
Now, many of us in here might be honest with themselves and say, look, pastor, I want to, I do, but I just don't have a desire to be in the word of God. Here's the key. You want the solution? You want a deeper desire for God's word? Here's the secret. You show some self-control and you read God's word. You sit down and you get after it. When you make it a priority, it will become necessity because it is not just some ordinary book. The reality is we shouldn't be surprised we don't have a hunger for God's word when we are filling our minds with everything else. I love football. I love the Jacksonville Jaguars. My goal come football season, though, is to be in my Bible studying it, meditating in it more hours throughout the week than I give football games. We joke about how our culture just binge watches TV shows. If the show is edifying, enjoy yourself. But don't seem perplexed. You can't hear the voice of the Lord in your life if your Bible is only open for an hour on Sundays while three televisions in your house stay on constantly. Look, I'm not innocent of this. Can I ask you to pray for me? My phone, my smartphone, which makes people not so smart, needs to be on my key holder at 6 p.m. when I enter that house. Not on my side and not the constant focus of my attention. Because my wife comes first, my kids come second, and this church comes third. And that is the way you want it. So please keep me accountable and let me end with this. The Bible and your love for a direct connection to Jesus Christ, our merciful Savior and Lord, who gave it all so we could have it all, is in John 1, 1 through 3, and it needs to be the meditation of our heart. Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern, refers to a renowned agnostic professor of ethics and philosophy that teaches in Charleston. Uh, and this guy is just on the war path. He's not just an atheist. He's a militant atheist. And his goal is to wipe Christianity off the face of the earth. And he's going after the younger generations. Now, he begins the first class of the year with the question, how many of you believe in God? And many raise their hand, right? You're in Charleston. Many raise their hand. Next question. How many of you have read, and then he says, a popular novel? So let's just say, for instance, he says, The Hunger Games. How many of you have read The Hunger Games in its entirety? And this generation of college kids, 95% of them just shoot their hands up, right? have read The Hunger Games in its entirety. He then asks, how many of you have read the entire Bible? And then virtually everyone puts their hands down. Then he springs the trap, and this is what he captures the class with. He goes, I can understand why you'd read The Hunger Games from start to finish. It's entertaining. But if you really believed God wrote a book, wouldn't there be a want in you to read the whole thing? Stay up late, call into work, make your way through it, grasping at it, knowing it is a source of life and correction? This professor exposes a major problem among professed followers of Jesus Christ. He highlights those raised in a culturally Christian setting, having some major inconsistencies with what they say and with what they do. We show that we believe about the Bible by how we use the Bible, not merely what we say about the Bible. Statistically, we are becoming a people who are the first to stand up for the use of something that we aren't reading. 
When we see a supernatural book full of history and redemption and shout, no postmodernism, no atheism, no terrorism can take this truth down. There is a person behind the pages and his name is Christ, who by believing in him, we can have eternal life. When everything else becomes dust, we can have a consistency, a rock, a firm foundation. The Bible is not an advice column. The living, breathing word of God is a sword we wield for the most important battle we will ever participate in. We are here to grow the kingdom. We are here to save souls from the depths of hell with the word, with the message. Amelia Baptist, before this church is known for anything else, before this church is known for vacation Bible experience or evening in December or annual offering counts, even before friendliness and encouragement, let us be a church body known for our hunger for his perfect word. And let's see people in our community and abroad be saved and sustained by the power that it possesses. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful for your word. Let us live that out. Let us put legs to our gratitude. Let us fixate on the word of God before we fixate on anything else. May we stay the narrow path. May we stay the course. Father God, most importantly, may we stay on mission. Armed with the truth that Jesus Christ is who he said he is. 